You're listening to Storytime for Travellers, where adventurers share their craziest travel moments. Welcome back to Storytime for Travellers. I'm so excited that I finally tracked down our guest for this episode. This man is always on the move on his motorbike, collecting fantastic stories. Tim Burke has been continuously travelling on his bike for the past few years, hitting 56 countries across four continents. He spent 26 months on the roads, got through 17 tyres and travelled 72,000 miles. His story is pretty epic. In 2017, Tim quit his job, sold his things, packed up his motorbike and headed to Europe, where he began his adventure. He's now at the start of the next leg of his journey, Africa, which strangely is kind of how I know Tim. In 2017, he went on a motorbike trip through Scotland with my dad for an article that they were writing, and they became great friends. They were riding with a company called Rent a Motorcycle, and Tim stayed in contact with the team there. Now, Rent a Motorcycle have decided to support him in his journey through Africa and have helped him to build a bike for the trip. He'll spend six to seven months riding from Cape Town back to Scotland. In our conversation, we chat taking his motorbike up an erupting volcano to get the photograph of a lifetime, riding through Honduras on the brink of civil war, and doing donuts in a Lamborghini in front of the Parliament building in Bulgaria, plus loads more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. On this week's episode of the podcast, I'm welcoming Tim Burke. So hi, Tim. How are you doing? How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm excited that I've tracked you down to get you on the podcast. It's been it's been quite the challenge to uh, make our schedules match, but I'm I'm happy that we finally were able to make them mesh. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, so the first story that I wanted to speak to you about is about a photo on your Instagram that you did last year. So you made a short documentary about taking your bike to the top of a mountain and getting a photo with an erupting volcano behind it, which was awesome. So can you tell us the story of how you got that photo? Yeah, it was it was a surprise to me uh, as, as much as it was to anyone. I, I had been on the road at that point for eight months and I was, I, I did six months in Europe. The, the initial game plan was to do six months, get it out of my system and return to responsible adult, adulthood. I didn't realize that the lifestyle was addicting. So um, upon my return, I just pointed my motorcycle south and I was decided to drive to the bottom of South America. And I was halfway through Mexico when uh, a Guatemalan film company contacted me and asked to film a documentary and I felt like I had to explain myself that I'm not a celebrity I'm 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 just a schmuck driving his motorcycle around <laughs> the world I'm just I'm just a regular guy I, I don't think I'm the one that you want to film this is I'm nor am I a professional athlete like go talk to Travis Pastrana or someone really cool that can like <laughs> backflip dirt bikes across between two skyscrapers in Las Vegas I'm just driving my motorcycle around, drinking beer in different spots around the world. And these guys said, yeah, no, that's what we like about it. 
we have this crazy idea. We, we like the idea that you're driving your motorcycle around and taking pictures of it in all these beautiful spots. What if we got it to the top of a volcano and got a picture of it up there erupting? Now, this was on my bucket list, but I had to remind these guys again, I'm not a professional uh I'm not a professional athlete by any means. Is this even possible? This motorcycle's my daily driver. Like if I blow this thing up or it falls off the side of a volcano, I am out of luck. Like that's it. My travels are over. And they said, well, we, I think that it's doable. They kind of pitched the idea to me. They told me that it was going to require some special permits uh, that they were going to take care of. They were going to have an entire team of people helping me to make this happen. There was about uh, five of them, uh, pretty, pretty young company. And they, what the selling point for me was, was nobody had done this before. Nobody had gotten this particular photo before with a motorcycle of my size up there. I think people had taken really small mopeds or something. You know, some of the local farmers might've been up there before, but that's what sold it for me. I said, all right, I'm in this, this sounds irresponsible, but I'll do it. That's that's why it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, sure. If it's a bad idea, it's probably a good idea. Let's do it. And uh, I showed up in Antigua, Guatemala, and I met these guys at six in the morning, which was way too early for, for my sleep schedule at the time. But I met with them and we did some filming around Antigua. And then we started up the side of this volcano and it was way steeper than I thought it would be based on my Google Earth research before I committed to this. At this time, I had bald tires in my motorcycle. I stretch, the tires are really expensive as you travel, so I stretch my tires until the very end, until it's a safety issue, and then I put new tires on. I was probably had two or three weeks left of life in my tires, so they were horrible. I wasn't getting any traction. Um, at a certain point, the volcano just got so steep that we ended up using ropes that were tied to the metal crash bars that are on the side of my bike that protect it. And there were some areas that we had to pull the motorcycle up like a tug of war competition. And the whole time my tires were spinning, it was super hot, super humid. So I was just dying. And every time we thought, that we would make progress and come up over a crest. And I was thinking to myself, this must be the top. There would just be another vertical or near vertical face. And at a certain point when things got really sketchy, the sun started going down and there was like a two foot wide trail on the side of a cliff. So on my right side, while climbing up, this cliff on my right side is a vertical wall. Oh my God. On my left side was another vertical wall that dropped off like hundreds and hundreds of feet. It was a far fall. If I fell or the bike fell, it would be the end of both of us. And again, we used these ropes and kind of pulley system uh, of a human pulley system to make sure that the bike nor me fell off the side of a cliff. And by the time we got to the top, it was almost 9 or 10 p.m. at night. And uh, the sun had already gone down. And this volcano erupts every two or three hours. We were hearing it all day. 
in the only way that I can describe it is it sounds like a bowling alley, the loudest bowling alley you've ever heard in your life. You could feel it in your chest, kind of like fireworks or a bomb going off. And it lasts for 15 or 20 seconds of just this crazy rumbling. And finally, by the time we got to the top, you can see the plume of smoke. And it was just the wildest feeling of accomplishment, not just for me, who um, beat the heck out of his motorcycle, getting it up there. But the whole team, we were like high-fiving each other, just full of excitement for getting the motorcycle what an amazing moment i remember watching your instagram st- struggle of you and like five guys dragging it up the mountain <laughs> and yeah. i was just like what's going on what are you doing but yeah that's that's so awesome that must have been such an incredible feeling getting it to the top it it was and knowing that either nobody had or not too many people had done it ever before what made it even more special and you know when people had done it it might have been on on dirt bikes that had good tires this was a motorcycle that had literally just seen all of europe and made its way down through mexico and most of guatemala it was your everyday motorcycle that just decided that it was a good idea to drive up the side of a volcano and it was just a crazy experience for everybody involved. There were some some Kiwis, uh, you know, that we had passed on the trail that we ended up, um, you know, kind of befriending. So many people had a part in this. And to get it up there and see this volcano erupting before you was like nothing I had experienced before. And it was all to get this one picture. I've always been joking with friends and family that, Every nice photo that I take, it's ruined somehow by a motorcycle in the foreground. That's kind of my niche is, <laughs> is uh, driving my motorcycle to the edges of the earth to get a picture of it in places that nobody had before. And this was one of the extreme spots. And, and I set up my camera and I did a, a long exposure photograph of the volcano erupting with my motorcycle in the foreground. And when it hit social media, the picture just kind of uh, took on a personality of its own. People around the world were commenting on it. And it was one of the coolest experiences of my life. It was definitely one of the one of the photographs that I worked hardest for. And, you know, in all the times that I've taken photos, it was a neat, neat day. Yeah, it's definitely a highlight, standout moment. And if everyone listening hasn't seen the photo, go and check out the photo on Tim's Instagram. It's amazing. Um, now, I also wanted to ask you if you have a story about visiting a country where you were kind of surprised or your eyes were open to the reality of the situation in that country. Is there anywhere that shocked you? So many places throughout my throughout my travels. I I can narrow down one, or or I can tell you how many what travels done in the sense that we all go into every new situation with these preconceived notions. I certainly did. I, I come from a country where, where where you turn on the TV at dinner time and it's dominated by news stations that are paying big bucks to sell us their story. And these stories come with exaggeration, um, some embellishment. They're 
definitely biased depending on who's funding these news stations. And whether we like to admit it or not, that has an influence on the way that we perceive the world. And so many of the places that I've been to, I think I'm at 56 or 57 countries. So many of these countries, I go in with these, I might not even be aware of it, but I go in with these preconceived notions and you go in and you realize that the human beings have the same exact priorities that you and I have and what, what we would consider, I guess, first world countries. You know, it's it's taking care of your family. It's not being thirsty and it's not being hungry. That's Those are our three priorities in life that humans have. And a lot of the countries that I've been to just remind me of that. One example was going into Honduras. And Honduras statistically is one of the most dangerous countries in the world outside of a war zone. So the way that you measure that is number of homicides per 100,000 people. Now, when you look at those numbers, both Honduras and El Salvador, they're next door neighbors. They have a friendly competition where they go back and forth, I think, about <laughs> who, who, who can get that number higher. Yeah. Um, it's gang warfare. And the crime is highly concentrated to drug trafficking, um, which is a major part of the underground economy there. And I was pretty intimidated going into this country after all I had already been through to add to the complexity of that situation. They had just had elections where their president, their former president eliminated term limits. So he's essentially setting himself up for dictatorship. They had the elections and within four hours, he said, all right, well, we counted the votes. I'm the president again. And people are like, wait a second, I didn't even vote yet. So the country was in turmoil and protests due to election fraud. And they were, they said, all right, you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll, we'll have a recount. We'll, we'll have a revote. And 20 days had gone by. And I was traveling with my Canadian friend, Justin, at the time. And I said, hey, they're going to announce the recount any day now like we need to hustle through Honduras and the number one rule that I my my number one advice to traveling through these areas is be off the road at night you know during the daytime uh, like 95 percent of your risk is eliminated during the daytime most bad things happen at night we were in El Salvador and we didn't get to the Honduras border until 7 p.m. at night and I said let's get a good night's sleep and we'll, we'll hit the border crossing early in the morning. Well, it was around 8.30. We we had found this really, really awful lodging on the El Salvador Honduras border. But it was safe. We found a safe parking spot, locked parking spot for our motorcycles. And around 8.30, the only food that we can find was this, was this awful, dirty Burger King on the border. But it had Wi-Fi. So he lost all the color in his face and just had this expression that I'll never forget. And I said, what's, what's the issue? He said, they just denounced the vote. And oh I said, gosh. Oh, oh man, like timing couldn't be worse. I said, well, like they're going to protest all night. Maybe they'll wear themselves out and in the morning they'll be tired and they'll go to bed. And he goes, yeah, okay. And either way we set the alarm clocks 
or six in the morning and we get to the border and our translator, it's pretty common down there with these corrupt border crossings. There are no rules. It's if you throw money at certain government officials, they'll make the process more efficient for you. So um, oftentimes you'll hire a translator to run around. He knows the process. Um, they'll make photocopies for you. They'll tell you who who it's worth giving a dollar bribe or two dollar bribes to. It's, it's really a ridiculous process, but that's just the way that it works in some of these countries. He said, you guys literally picked the worst time to cross, but I think that it's worth, we'll go check out the, uh, the Honduras border. So we check out of El Salvador, they, they stamp our passports with an exit stamp, and there's, there's about four kilometers of no man's land before you get to uh, Honduras. So you're, you're not in El Salvador, you've already got your exit stamp from El Salvador and your vehicle stamped out because you have to stamp your vehicle in and out to, to countries, not just your passport. And we arrive at the Honduras border and there's just something in the air, you can feel it, you can feel it on the hairs in the back of your neck that things were tense, it was not a comfortable feeling. It just felt like a dangerous situation. and there's my, my Spanish has gotten a lot better throughout my travels, but it's not, it's not, I'm not fluent enough to understand, um, the really rapid speech. And there's a government official talking to our translator and the guy that's going to help us get through the border crossing. And he does this, um, mo movement with his hands that he's like washing his hands. And I look at the translator. I said, what, what was that all about? He goes, he says that he's washing his hands of you kids coming into his country. This oh is stupid. God. And I said, that's fine. That's all I need to hear. We'll go back to El Salvador. No, no sweat off my back. Now, you know, things are bad when you're trying to flee to El Salvador, which is also not, it doesn't have the safest reputation. He said, oh, no, you can't go back to El Salvador. You checked out of El Salvador, both the vehicle and you. You can't return for 72 hours. Once you check out. So you're stuck there for 70, 72 hours. So what did you do? At least. So I look at Justin. I said, well, we're in Honduras on the brink of civil war, whether we like it or not. And, you know, Justin being a Canadian says something along the lines of, well, might as well send it. And, um, you know, we just made the best of the situation. We crossed into Honduras and we had already gotten uh, the, the goal was to make it to Nicaragua, which is only. 150 miles away. So on Honduras' Pacific coast, on the west coast of Honduras, is really narrow between the country of El Salvador and Honduras. And Honduras is a beautiful country, absolutely beautiful country. It just wasn't the right time to explore it. Uh, there, was, there was massive protests and fires burning. And the guy said, well, there's already, we're, we're getting reports of there's already like seven roadblocks and there's more popping up and the military's involved now and the police are involved and the military had elected the help of the police just to show how tense the situation was. The military had elected the help of the police and to, to enforce a government curfew and the police said, we're not enforcing that, we're on the side of the people. So now it's the people in the police versus the government in the military, which is a recipe for civil war and yeah. an eruption of violence and everything 
was just pointing towards bad news. And I proactively bought some rice and beans and I have water purification. I looked at Justin and said, if we have to hole up in a, in a motel or something, you know, for four or five days, we can do it. We can survive. It's not going to be pretty, but we can do it. Let's see how far we can make it. And uh, we got through the border crossing and we just started rolling through. And actually, I haven't admitted this. I think the statute of limitations is up. So I'm willing to admit this now. This is the first time that I've admitted this. I did something illegal. I Before my travels, I had gone on eBay and bought a Canadian license plate just because the United States license plate, we, the, the political conflicts that my country gets itself involved in doesn't paint us in the best light. I'm aware of that. And in a situation like this, my government was supporting their corrupt government due to their drug policy. Yeah, so you don't want anyone to see an American license plate in that exactly. situation at all, do you? And it's so funny. So so we get through the border and I slap on my expired British Columbia license plate. You know, it expired a decade ago, but nobody's going to know that. Justin won't let me live it down to this day. He still accuses me of impersonating a Canadian. <laughs> And, um, you know, he says he's going to hold me accountable. It's not right. I shouldn't act like I'm a Canadian. I'm not good enough for that. He's always, <laughs> he uses, he uses this to, um, to, he, he won't let me forget about it. But anyways, we're rolling up to these, uh, roadblocks and there was still humanity. And that, that was one of the situations that I realized humans are good. People helped us as soon as they realized we're tourists and we're not involved in the situation they helped us through these roadblocks. And the first one I'll never forget, there was people armed with sticks and stones and they were burning tires and couches and basically anything that they can put a flame to, they were burning. And on the other side of this line was the military with machine guns and they were nose to nose. And we waited there for a bit and someone said, you can, you can cross if you're a tourist. I'm like, I'm not driving up. What are you nuts? And he goes, I'll go talk to him for you. And he goes and talks to the military, talks to the police, and they all give a nod of the head, and they just separated, and they let us through. Oh and they gosh. were hooting and hollering and sharing, and they thought what we were doing was the coolest thing in the world. And we came across six or seven different roadblocks that day, and um, it was similar situation. Some of them we couldn't get through, so we were given directions around the roadblocks, and it just reminded me in the most dangerous country in, in the world on the brink of civil war, people will still help you out. And that was uh, that was pretty life changing for me. Yeah. And it's so easy in these situations to see it as kind of as two sides. So there's the people walk, like blocking the road with with fire and then there's the the military with guns. But really, they're just people, isn't it? And And that's like what you're saying. It kind of made you realize that these are these are human beings who like will still will still help you out and get you through um now tim on the Storytime for travelers podcast we ask all of our guests to share a pinch me moment so if this is a moment when you're traveling when you look around and just think wow i can't believe that i'm seeing this so could you share a pinch me moment from one of your trips yeah for sure i mean it's been about 26 months of pinch me moments and 
I'm sure the the easy way out would be describing, you know, a beautiful setting in Patagonia or the beaches of Brazil and thinking that things are pretty. But I think I think my pinch me moment was wasn't anything of natural beauty. It was more thinking about the situation that I had got myself into and just laughing. I couldn't help but laugh. I had just broken my foot in Greece on a small scooter, which is an entirely different story that we won't talk about. And someone had messaged me on Instagram and said, we can help you. We're in Bulgaria. We've got a pickup truck, a group of friends. We've been following your journey via social media for like a few months now. We love what you're doing. We'll come pick up your motorcycle. We'll get you medical care in Bulgaria. And, you know, don't worry about it. And, you know, that saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So I was pretty skeptical. I had decided to drive my motorcycle with a broken foot, regardless, into Bulgaria. And this guy, who, mind you, has become one of my really close friends, told me, well, how about we just meet for coffee? I'd love to meet you. I said, all right, I can do that. I meet with him. And he's the nicest guy in the world. He said, I've got a like a penthouse suite that you can stay in, let your foot rest, it's fine, relax, everything's cool. And I was like, okay, that's fine, I'll check it out. Still pretty skeptical. I see this like perfect penthouse suite, and he goes, you wanna see my motorcycles? And he takes me downstairs, and there's two or three motorcycles, ATVs, a side-by-side, four-by-four, a Porsche, and a Lamborghini. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm not even going to ask too many questions. This looks like a lot of fun. He goes, which one do you want to take for a ride? I'm like, obviously the Lamborghini. He goes, all right, let's go. And we're driving around Sofia, Bulgaria at what seems like a million and a half miles an hour doing like donuts and peel outs in the parliament building is in the middle of the city. And it's it's this massive traffic circle and we're doing donuts in front of the parliament building in a Lamborghini in Bulgaria. And I'm thinking to myself, is this real life? What the, what the heck did I do? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of un- unbelievable, isn't it? I have video and photo evidence <laughs> because I told You're the like, story. It really happened. I wish I could show you my phone. They're like, you are so full of it. And I was like, no, check this out. <laughs> and we're doing, we're just driving around Bulgaria like maniacs, doing circles in front of a government, like the highest, highest government bill. It would be equivalent of me doing like donuts in front of around, uh, in front of the White House in Washington, D.C. And uh, I was like, can someone pinch me? Is this real life? What the heck? is going on here. And then I just realized again, when you start traveling, you meet unique people, you meet special people. And it was just an individual who, um, who's befriended me and, and you know, just wanted to be involved in the journey and show me a good time. And, um, I ended up getting to know his, his family and his children and his friends in during my time in Bulgaria, they treated me like I was one of them. And it was just, it, it, it was almost so good to be true. It, it, 
I was thinking to myself, someone needs to pinch me. There's no way this is real life. That really is a pinch me moment <laughs> when you're like, how am I in this situation? That's yeah. just amazing. What a cool situation to be in. And yeah, that's what traveling gives you, these crazy, unexpected experiences. Now, we haven't got long. I think we've got time for one more story. Is there a time when you've, I mean, riding a motorbike around the world, you must have faced some really difficult riding situations or is there a time when things have been challenging that stands out? Absolutely. From There's there's pros and cons to everything in life and, and, I, and I try my best to be honest about that, both on my social feeds and storytelling or seeing friends um, at the bar when I'm, when I'm back home. I think if you're not careful on social media, it's really easy to get swept away by these accounts that portray a perfect life. That's not reality. There, there are ups and downs. And, and, you know, one of them is being on the road all the time, being in a different hostel every single night or every other night. That can take its toll. But then there are the times that things just don't seem to be going your way. Or, you know, things seem like they just can't get any lower and, and you've gotten yourself into a helpless situation. Uh, one of the lows of my trip was was crashing my motorcycle in Peru. It's about 15,000 feet above sea level, if my metric system is correct. That's about like 4,700 meters above sea level. The mountains in Peru, even you've been there before. You know how yeah. massive those mountains are. They're absolutely stunning, but the roads in Peru are like the most crazy, wildest, roller coaster, dangerous world roads in the world. Yeah, they're so winding, aren't they? They're winding and there's no safety barriers. It's if you go off the road, you're gonna plummet like thousands of feet down a cliff. But from a motorcycling standpoint of view, there's no there's nothing better in the world than the roads of Peru. I was deep in the Andes Mountains, far from any civilization. And these roads were so narrow, like you had to squeeze past each other if you came on oncoming traffic. And I was coming up and over an, a mountain pass, and I was probably, I wasn't going very fast, and neither was the opposite direction pickup truck. But it was a blind corner, and we couldn't stop on time, and we crashed into each other head-on collision. Oh, my god! And I launched up and over my handlebars and ended up on his hood and rolled off on his driver's side, somehow completely uninjured. But what happened to the bike was a different story. The bike, I remember looking back at it and thinking, oh, crap, this is the end of my trip. There's no way I'm going to get back on the road you know, the emotions associated with that. I had worked so hard to travel all that distance to make it to the bottom of South America and I hadn't made it yet. And there's no way I had the finances to get a new motorcycle. Like that was it for me. It was returned to real life. I gave it everything that I had and it just didn't work out because I crashed my motorcycle. What what made it more challenging was getting the motorcycle was the logistics of getting the motorcycle out of the mountain. So, um, the motorcycles like spilling out fluids and everything. And we get the motorcycle in the back of this pickup truck that I crashed into and take it down into the, the direction that I had already come from. We continue down in that direction and go to the police station. What well, turns out the police chief 
is the guy's brother who I crashed into. Uh. And they they put me in a jail cell. And it's like they're playing the whole game. I didn't commit any crimes, but, you know, what the heck am I going to do? I'm the I'm the foreigner and um, there's not much I can do. And they end up bribing me out of like settling and saying, you're at fault. You owe me 500 U.S. dollars. And I was having trouble getting money out of the ATM down there because my bank thought it was a little bit suspicious that I kept going back to an ATM to get money. It was just a nightmare. And I ended up settling with the guy, even though it wasn't my fault or his fault. It was just the way that the roads are up there. Sometimes you crash into each other. I end up settling for for an amount of money that I don't even want to think about. And then I'm still six and a half hours from the closest city. Yeah, and getting back on a bike after that, you must have been like slightly traumatized to... Well, the bike wasn't drivable, so I needed to organize shipping logistics because my wheel was bent and my forks were bent and the engine was messed up. So the guy says, well, I'm going down to the city anyways, the guy that I crashed into. I'll take you down there for another $500. I'm like, oh my God, you are just... You are just taken me for everything aren't you but i had no other options so he put the motorcycle on the back of his truck and he takes me down to um uh this coastal town in peru and from there i switched to a different truck who took it to lima and in lima um one of the motorcycle shops down there had been again following the story on instagram and was like oh i was expecting you i thought you'd be showing up here <laughs> they and, were uh, ready for within you. a week and a half got my motorcycle, pieced oh, it back amazing. together. I thought it was just toast. They somehow fixed it and got me back on the road. And um, it looked like a Frankenstein motorcycle. It was all pieced together and taped and wired. And But it worked and it, it, it completed the journey all the way down to the bottom and then all the way up into Brazil. And I kept going. That's amazing. Now, Tim, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I could keep listening to your stories all day. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to hear your stories. Yeah, it's so good to hear you. And hopefully our paths cross and, uh, and, and we can have a beer sometime. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tim. I think you'll agree his stories are pretty extraordinary. You can check out his photography and follow his journey through Africa on Instagram at Tim Burke Photo. I'll also link the film that he worked on that shows him getting his bike up the side of an erupting volcano in the show notes. You can find more about our guests on the podcast on our Instagram at Storytime for Travellers. And we'd love it if you could subscribe and leave a review. I can't wait to chat to you again in a week on the next episode of Storytime for Travellers. Mm-hmm.